Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome to the very first episode of the Jet-Centric Podcast. My name is AJ, and I'm going to be one of your hosts from a cast of rotating hosts for this new podcast. In the last year, there's been four Jets-themed podcasts that I know of that have actually quit recording, so we're going to attempt to fill that void left behind by some of those. Um, We're going to have some different format than probably what you're used to. We're going to have you know, the typical roundtable discussion, but we're also going to have a lot of interviews, like I said, rotating hosts, and we also have a call-in feature, which I'll explain briefly. Um, we're going to be on a whole bunch of different platforms, iTunes very shortly, uh, Google Play, which is now becoming Google Podcasts, so you might have to adjust your listening. We are already on Spotify, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and Anchor. I might have missed one in there too, but uh, there's also Anchor, and with Anchor, that's if you listen to us there you can actually leave us a message you can leave us a voice message up to a minute long and we can add it into the podcast you can ask us the questions you can give us the comments whatever whatever you like some vitriol and uh, we can add it in and uh, you can participate so that's kind of different than what i think a lot of podcasts do um anyhow in this first episode it's uh, three parts three interviews it's me doing three interviews. Uh, The first one is with John Malloy of Jets Nation. We talk about uh, free agency and the recent trade with the Jets. And uh, the second part is me chatting with Brian from Arctic Ice Hockey. And we are talking about the draft and some prospects. And then lastly, we wrap it up with a segment, me interviewing my good friend, Chris Mackling, where we talk and sort of do a debrief of the Jets playoff run. So hopefully enjoy it and come back and tell all your friends and find us on any of those platforms because we're on a lot of them. And don't forget to leave us a message. All right. Enjoy. I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Um, so uh, with you, we're going to be chatting a little bit about your article that you wrote the other day for JetsNation.ca called Who to Move and Who to Keep. And it was, if it's not obvious by the title, about some of the players that were on the trade block. This article is written before probably, well, obviously before the time people are going to listen to this, there's been a lot of stuff that's happened since then. So I was wondering if you could kind of break down a few of the ones that you were right about that you called. That you called. Yeah, so basically I went into the piece just putting myself in Chevy's shoes, uh, showing how I'd save money if I were him. And uh, a lot of people have commented and said, hey, did, uh, did Chevy ghostwrite this thing? Because I had Armia and Mason being traded and the day after it was published, the two of them, of course, were dealt to Montreal. Uh, now, I don't want to give myself a whole bunch of credit here. I think everyone and their their dog knew that Steve Mason and his cap hit had no place on the team anymore. But maybe the less obvious choice was Joel Armia. And the, uh, the reason I picked Armia as a trade candidate is because he's going to cost what I'm imagining to be around $2 million. Uh, he got 29 points last year, which, of course, is nothing to sneeze at, but at the same time, you have to remember that he was used on the power play. Uh, that really helps with inflating your point total. And that the Jets really just have an abundance of wingers that can fill his role. Uh, they're a lot cheaper. And in my opinion, a lot of these guys are even better. Whether it's Nick Patan or Marco Dano, Joel Armia can be replaced. And the Jets will not get worse. So I think it was a, it was a great move by Chevy to free up an, an easy million dollars. And because once again, using Patan and Dano as your examples, those are guys that are probably going to cost either a million dollars and if not less. So if you're looking to free up cap space and there's a million dollars to be saved on the fourth line, I I think you have to prance on that opportunity, especially if you're talking about that fourth, that fourth shutdown line with Andrew Kopp and Adam Lowry, where they've proved that basically anyone can play with them. Uh, They do the heavy lifting on that line and they can play, they can play effectively with pretty much whoever you throw at them, whether it's Joel Armia, whether it's Brandon Tanev, they always did fine. So once again, moving army, I think it, it just made, it made perfect sense for a team that was looking to, to free up some money. Now with the army, I know a lot of people really like him on the penalty kill. Obviously he seemed to really excel there probably more than a lot of players that weren't um, obviously high IQ um, players like uh, Shifley, uh, Wheeler, some of these guys that, you know, you can put them pretty much anywhere on the ice and they, they just have a high IQ to, to, uh, you know, be up for the challenge of whatever it is. But right. Armia was one of those players that has been more role player that he seemed to find success there uh, more than 
uh, other people. Do you think that's is that a concern at all uh, for the Jets of replacing him in the penalty kill? Like, I'm personally a bit of a well, I think everyone's a believer in the idea that how about let's just take less penalties? <laughs> That'd be yeah. part of it. But is is that a concern that the Jets don't have maybe a a real uh, PK specialist? I guess. That's definitely where Armia will be missed the most. But uh, I think if you're looking to replace Joel Armia, one guy that I've always wanted to see on the on the penalty kill and maybe injury concern is the only thing holding him back is is Matthew Perot. Uh, his game is really tailored for the PK. You know, he, he's even smarter than Joel Armia. His reads and angles have just always been perfect. So I do think that if you're looking to replace Armia, they don't even have to go out and get somebody. I think that they've got a perfect candidate right there in Matthew Perot, who I think he, he would even be maybe a better, a better option than Armia. Uh, once again, there's the injury concern, but for the time being, I think that he could be the guy that you just slot right in. And once again, the Jets don't get worse at all by replacing Joel Armia. Right. And I think that's probably a bit more of the wave of the future. We'll see if Maurice likes that idea where you're not actually looking for specialists like that, but you're actually using the players that you already have that are, kind of existing that you you trust them five on five to get things done, but also you can trust them with the PK. Um, moving on to Mason, um, was there a bit of, like I know obviously he didn't have a great season last year with some injuries. Obviously the start to the season was pretty pretty dumpy, but was moving his salary, like was that a buyer's remorse thing, like they wanted to get rid of him no matter what, or was it strictly about freeing up that cap space for Stasny or is it something that they they had to do anyhow I'm like this is a question that I always come up with people get rid of players that they themselves sign or or, well I guess you are always sort of in charge of which players you acquire whether it's through draft or signing or or free agency Um, but I'm just curious like he had what was it a two-year two-year contract and it's he barely gets through the one year and he's already gone. What, what happened with his season? Why did that fall apart and his contract uh, stuff? Did they not see this coming or, or what do you, what do you think is going on there? I, I realize why he is a good candidate to, to move um, money wise, but what are, what are some of the other things that were maybe going on there? Well, he really is, I think a suspect backup option at this point. Like, I don't think it's, it's entirely impossible that he would be a, you know, he can still be a good goalie this year, but those concussions were just, they were happening seemingly like every month like I kind of lost track of how many that he got so I do think that moving him regardless of signing Stasny is still not the uh the worst thing in the world my only issue with it is that they ended up getting uh Laurent Brassois I think is how you pronounce it in place of him uh right and I'm not really comfortable with him being the number two coming into this season I mean I'm glad that he came cheap but that's about it uh he's like Mason, a very suspect back uh, backup option, but probably even more suspect than Mason because Brassaw has only played in a handful of NHL games. I think it's something like under 30. And in those games, he's got like a, a sub 900 save percentage. So I'm hoping that he's not the actual plan B behind Hellebuck. To me, that's a very risky play, but we'll see. I think for an extra million, they could have gotten a proven backup with, with average backup numbers, but those guys right. have mostly all been signed now. So it's kind of looking like he's the option for now, but once again, hopefully they, hopefully that situation figures itself out. Well, and, and leading up to his signing too, was the, the not re-signing of Jamie Phillips, right. With the, the moose, which seemed like maybe a place where he could have become the starter there. Maybe Comrie move into a, a backup role. I know some people like to see that. I'm not personally sold on it, but so moving on from Jamie Phillips and then with the Hutchinson uh, moving on as well, which everybody saw coming, but obviously it kind of, decimated the the organization's depth chart in that that area though definitely and Hutchins is one of those guys that you know he, he's a I think a proven backup right with with these average like he's his career save percentage is a lot better I think it's something like nine ten. so getting him for I think he signed for something like 1.3 million I could be wrong but uh yeah I think I you're right, definitely though. prefer to have a guy like that uh behind Hellebuck going into this season so I yeah I think that moving Joel Armia the, the Jets don't get worse at all but Moving Steve Mason, you know, they, they do get worse in that backup spot for sure. Yeah. Now, in, in your article, uh, you I think you had three main players that you had that you thought would be good trade bait. So two of those three have moved on. I believe there's three, right? And the third one would be Tyler Myers. Yes. Um, now, with that one, uh, I know people have talked about the signing Stasny, you know, option and moving Myers' contract. Was it moving Myers? Is it strictly about 
getting Stasny or was, or is it still about freeing up cap space for signing some of those other contracts for Truba and uh, Hellebuck and, and Morrissey? Is it something that should still happen? I know he's just got the one year left at 5.5, but um, is, is that something that needs to happen or has the, the whole picture changed a bit now? Well, I think that with missing out on Stasny, they, they can afford Myers now, and I don't expect him to be moved. Like, it's all probably going to work under the cap at this point. So, I mean, he, he is a, a third-pairing defenseman who's going to be, you know, costing you know, 5.5 against the cap hit, which is a lot of money. But if they can afford him, I, I just don't see a, really a, a scenario where they end up moving him. I really do think they like him. I'm not too high on him, but at this point, it's just it, it really looks like he's, he's here to stay. Right. So then now with, uh, I guess, some of the, again, the new, the new picture that's emerged here, would, would you go back and change your article and, and take Myers off there and maybe put another player on that sort of has maybe longer term ramifications? I mean, Myers has this year, right? And then he's done and we probably likely don't see him again. Um, but besides that, when you start thinking, okay, the short term, we know what we got this next year. But beyond that, do you put you know, take him off that list and maybe put Brian Little on that? Or are you looking at putting Perot on that or maybe some depth forward because you feel like you can fill in with some other people? Is there another candidate that you would maybe include in the article if you could retroactively write it? I think maybe one thing I should have included in that article is that two of the three were really all the Jets needed to move. Because of that, I'm going to answer your question with no. I think that they didn't need to ever move all three of them, especially now that Stasny isn't on the team. Uh, maybe if Stasny signs, you do have to find a way to, to kind of get rid of Myers as well. But uh, once again, at this point, it just it really looks like the money's going to work at least for this year. So in the short term, there's really no no money that I think you have to move out at this point. Right. So you don't you don't really see any more trades in the future for the Jets, what about uh, dipping a bit more into free agency? What are some of the things that you see from what's transpired since July 1st um, that still needs to maybe happen that would help them with their depth in, in certain areas or, or anything? I guess the, the one spot that I'd be looking to fill is, once again, I'm still looking to improve that backup goalie spot. Uh, and like I said, unfortunately, there's not really many options out there. The only one I'm really looking at is... Uh, ironically is Andre Pavlik. I think that it could be a decent backup and uh, that would obviously, obviously cause a stir online, which I'd pay to see. But the, the one UFA at this point that I think the Jets should be looking at and maybe the only one is Calvin DeHaan, who's a left-handed defenseman. And the Jets do have a bit of a void to fill there at left defense now that Toby Enstrom's gone. Uh, the last I heard of DeHaan, uh, Dubas was, was after him and other GMs should take note that Whenever he's looking to sign a guy, you should try mm -hmm. to get him as well because he's probably going to be a really good player. Right. And I think that he would slot nicely next to Buff and kind of round up the Jets' top four. And that way you don't have to worry about, you know, Kulikov being in your top four or, heaven forbid, moving Myers to his offside, which has been suggested and talked about. And the, the, the good thing about DeHaan is that he shouldn't be too uh, – he really shouldn't be too expensive – there's a at evolving wild on Twitter does his salary projections. And I think his model predicted DeHaan's salary to be in the ballpark of 4 million. So maybe something similar to Kulikov's contract. And the only difference being is that DeHaan is an actual top four option, a solid top four option. Whereas, you know, Kulikov's a decent, just a decent bottom pairing guy. So there's not much left in free agency that, I, that I'd be going at, but uh, DeHaan's definitely the one that if there was someone I'd be wanting to sign, he's the guy. Right. Now with the, uh, I guess, talking about the backup goaltending situation, that seems like it's going to be a topic for a while. Would that maybe be an area where the Jets would maybe look to trade um, something like a Tyler Myers, just kind of getting back to that because they do have some more depth on the right side than, than the left side. I think Tucker Pullman is ready. Um, we've talked uh, off air uh, before about my feelings about him. I feel like he's more than capable of being that, that third third pair defenseman and that's just my opinion but uh would there be a chance that you think tyler myers could move in a a package that would include getting a more significant backup goalie would that be something that uh, the jets now would look at i think that's something that i would explore once again it's not something that i expect them to do i i do think that they like tyler myers but i'm i'm all ears for finding ways to get rid of him and especially if it means finding a way to get, you know, to, to solidify a, a more important role. 
And uh, if you sign a guy like DeHaan, then I definitely am on board with getting rid of Myers because now your top four is, is definitely filled up and you've got guys like Joe Morrow, you've got guys like Sammy Niku, and like you just mentioned, Tucker Pullman, who could easily play on the bottom pair. So if it's uh, finding a way to improve it in a different area, I'm definitely looking to, to deal Myers. All right, quick, cool, John. I got one last question for you. With the, the Stasny signing in, in Vegas, that situation, um, that was obviously for the Jets plan A, right? Um, do you think that their plan B is uh, quite sorted out or was their plan B always in flux? It seems um, that caught some people unaware that that was a potential to happen. And maybe a lot of people had their eggs in one basket on that one. But do you think that they have a solid plan B? Like I, the, the depth of the forwards is good, but are they maybe looking at something else to to uh, soften the blow of not getting a, a free agent that they were coveting? Yeah, see, I'm, I don't think that missing out on Stasny was all that bad. I think it has its benefits. He, he was going to be – he's pricey, obviously, right? It was at $6.5 and that would probably complicate things next year. Right. Uh, no one really comes off the books – next year except for Myers and it's really only small stuff after that like you know Ben Chirot and Stewart's buyout money uh Wheeler but he's obviously a guy that you'd expect to stay and he's probably going to get a bump in salary so I think the plan B is definitely going to be where we see a guy like maybe Patan or Raza Vigdano some of the guys that we've wanted to get a fair shot for years are on the cusp of being put in a better position to succeed now so I don't think that their plan B is going to be from outside of the organization. I think you're going to see one of those, one of those fringe guys, or maybe not fringe guys, uh, guys that they view as fringe players. I think that one of those guys gets maybe a crack in the top nine now, and that they're definitely going to, to, to keep his role replaced within the organization. I, I like that answer. I think uh, you and I and many other people would probably agree that they have the depth in the organization to have, had, which is crazy to even think, an even stronger team, I guess, on paper than they even did last year um, within the organization before the addition of, of Stasny. Obviously, Roslovic was kind of brought into the fold up into the, the, the big club later on in the season. And that, you know, was uh, great to see see his uh, production and his uh, development there. But uh, yeah, I think uh, they, they got everything that they need already there. So I personally, I wasn't too heartbroken about the Stasny. Um, I was... I, for me personally, I didn't want more than a two-year deal at six mil. I think I would have slept very well, uh, seeing none of it's my money anyhow. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I just th that's kind of where I went. So I didn't think that was going to be likely anyhow. Um, what for yourself were you? What would you have been comfortable with with the Stasny uh, term and money that would have made sense for you? Pretty much the same as you. You know, uh, I guess. Stasny realistically probably wasn't going to sign for anything less than three years, but because right. of that cap, it goes high. Right. So yeah, 6 million maybe would be like tops, but it's uh, once again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the same boat as you. I'm not, I was bummed out to see him leave, but we do have options within you. You have your Nick Patans and Jack Rosovics. They can play center. I'm not sure if that's their, uh, the, the long-term place for them in this organization, but those guys, I think could easily handle, third third line duties you know playing against third line competition so am i upset yes but am i losing sleep over it definitely not right yeah yes i feel the same way and actually just uh i know people kind of hate on it when i talk about uh, the lockout but i mean the the nhl has had these work stoppages over and over and it feels like after this next season we're looking probably at another work stoppage for at least a bit of time and in this last two CBAs, I believe there was some buyout options that were there. So for me, I would, with the whole Stasny idea, I was thinking, let's get to the end of the lockout when um, that happens. And there's probably some provisions for some uh, uh, penalty-free buyouts. And then you can set yourself up to be in the best position going forward from the season after next uh, to just pretty much be moving almost completely forward with a whole bunch of young guys that are signed you know, for long-term, you got the money and just basically have Buff and, and Wheeler as the, the last two guys. I see Brian Little as likely being a buyout candidate in, in two years from now if we're not able to move that contract. So, Yeah, because I think he's got what his no-move clause kicks in officially this year. I think there were some talks about maybe being retroactive to last year already. But uh, I think it's a modified no-trade clause after two seasons. Yeah, that I don't know the details about. You, you're 
asking the wrong guy. I try and <laughs> keep up on things, but uh, I, yeah, I think you're you're barking up. You know, you're in the right forest. I don't know if it's the right tree, but yeah, that's definitely yeah, the the biode angle is definitely uh, an interesting one that I haven't even looked at myself, but uh, definitely worth mentioning. Yeah, I just I I believe is the last lockout, and I won't rag on this too too long, but uh, I think uh, teams were provided two buyouts that didn't count towards the cap. So I, I'm pretty sure Brisgalov and Briere or Le Cavalier was part of that in Tampa right. Bay. Uh, so I'm, I remember Philly using both them and yelling at the, my TV that the Jets would use that one of theirs <laughs> on, on Pavlik. That was the, that was my hope, but they never did. So, um, and, oh, and I think you have to use it within the first two years, I think after the CBA was signed. So anyhow, that's enough of that. John, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely have you on again. And maybe uh, when we record, kind of in studio per se with a group of us we'll we'll have you in and talk for a little bit longer too so thanks for doing this yeah no worries thanks for having me and uh, i look forward to it take care and and people can find you uh some more articles on jets nation coming up soon or what hopefully this summer yeah i got a lot of free time coming up so uh maybe i'll, I'll put it to use and uh, you'll see a lot more of me so be on the all right so, sounds good you're one of the smart ones i like it <laughs> <laughs> okay it. yeah take care john bye-bye you too Well, it looks like I'm here with Brian. Brian uh, from Ohio, known on Twitter as, what is it, Brian AIH? Brian from AIH, is that correct? Yes, that yeah. is. Journalism student, super Jets fan, right? I got the, I got all that. That's your introduction. Sorry, that was that was very informal, but that's uh, that's your introduction. You're, you're, you've been on the podcast enough to uh, not really need too much of an introduction, but that's, that's all I got for you this time. Sorry. This will probably be the most people hear of me okay <laughs> yeah okay uh so we're i'm gonna be picking your brain a little bit about the the draft that just uh, passed by um did you get a chance to actually watch the draft or no uh i watched the first round and then on saturday i happened to be i was just running everywhere due to some family stuff brother's graduation party all that so i kind of just followed on my phone Right, but, just kind of on some uh, apps or something like that, just yeah. seeing, seeing it scroll. And I guess uh, by the time it got to that, the second, that's that's when the Jets were involved was, I guess, when it was just on your phone watching the first round. Yeah. Jets-wise, at least to pay attention to, eh? Yeah, the first round was painful because I was watching on TV. I was all ready. Thought the Jets might make a trade up. So I wanted to make sure I was watching. And then the disappointment hit after uh, Washington made their pick. Right, right. Well... Anyhow, with the uh, with the draft, was was, you, was this uh, going into the draft? Was this supposed to be a strong draft class? Was there like any really big names? Like I know right at the very top there was, but uh, how was it kind of perceived overall? This this draft did we did we did we really miss out by not having a first round draft pick? Was that a big deal? I think so. There are a lot of a lot of first round names I liked at the top, like top through the middle. I mean, obviously guys like Wallstrom, uh, Darlene. Those were two names that really got to me. Uh, Bouchard was another one that kind of hit late at a position that I wish the Jets would draft a bit higher ceiling guys from. Right. I'd love Which to was, see the Jets add another uh, right-handed defenseman. And where where were these? Where was he drafted at? Uh, Bouchard was drafted at ten by Edmonton. Okay. okay. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't actually pay too too close of attention to this. I knew that the draft Jets weren't going to be too involved, so I kind of checked out a little bit so i'm glad you paid attention to it but overall um this was a pretty strong graph draft class um i liked last year's a lot and it wasn't as highly regarded as this one but there's going to be talent in the nhl from every single round this year oh well that's uh that's a bold prediction because i guess i heard numbers when you get to those lower rounds they're like probably third or fourth there's probably about a one in five chance about a 20 slightly under i think it's 18 percent goes all the way down to i think 14 percent for seventh rounders that uh, have a chance of actually making it so uh and i guess what's 14 what's 14 percent of uh 31 players i guess that's probably at least equals one one person per round i guess but you're 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 predicting that's going to be a little bit stronger than that though overall i i i would you can say that there's at least going to be one player that is sort of a regular right and maybe not Sorry, go ahead. Maybe not a no. It's all right. Maybe not a full-on star, but somebody that's going to contribute at least in a depth role. 
Right. And do you think this has to do with uh, sort of how they keep talking about the league getting younger, faster, more skilled, that it's uh, people are valuing these picks as not so much, like even throughout the rounds, that it's not um, uh, maybe more of an emphasis to to add those younger players and if you're adding young depth, not necessarily a young star every single time, right? Is that yeah. uh, sort of part of that? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, pl- older older veteran players are still valued very heavily probably a bit too heavily right but there's always going to be a need for there's always going to be a need for young depth whether it's in five years 10 years 15 years because players are always going to age out so you're always going to need that steady flow of players and the earlier you can get them involved it's the better because they'll have more experience and all that yeah it seems like uh over the last, what, uh, 10, 10, 12 years, it seems like the AHL has really gotten their act together too to be a, a, a real development league. Like some, some teams didn't even have, you know, farm teams that were, that were part of the AHL. There, there used to be the IHL. And, uh, but now it seems like they really have sort of a real, uh, what's the word, not streamline, what's a, the word, a pipeline kind of going to the NHL. And it, it maybe makes a lot more sense to get these players involved and in your, your actual system sooner then later and there, and there's more opportunity to do that too, eh? Oh yeah, it's definitely growing. I mean, probably in five years we'll see the ECHL turn into that third tier of development. And that I hope at least, I don't know if it's for sure, but I do think that within five years it's possible to see that the ECHL is that third tier of development. Where, right. Now the, the the ECHL exists right now as that, but it doesn't really get used much. So, right? Yeah, it's not. It's people use it, but it's not. It's not like the AHL where it is a development league. Some right. teams will utilize it, like how the Colorado Avalanche had the Colorado Eagles as their ECHL team. They just right. got promoted to the AHL due to the whole expansion thing. Right. So. With, oh really? I, di- I didn't hear about that. That was yeah. that was actually the Winnipeg Jets ECHL affiliate for a while, the Colorado Eagles, right? For a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And now they're uh, well, now they're now they're an AHL franchise. Yep. Wow, I did not they pay went, attention to that one. Within uh, fifteen years, they went from a uh, uh, Central Hockey League team, which no longer exists, into the ECHL, the East Coast Hockey League, now into the AHL. No. So they keep rising up the ranks. Maybe eventually there'll be two teams in Colorado, two NHL teams. That'd be fun. <laughs> one in Denver, one in Colorado Springs or something like that. <laughs> uh, Loveland, I think they are. Well, Loveland, okay. Well, I'm saying they'd probably move to the next biggest market, though. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyhow, back to the draft. We were talking about the draft. Um, I know that you are doing some writing and following uh, USHL teams, specifically uh, young Youngstown Phantoms, is that correct? Yes. You actually got to travel with the team a little bit this last year, right? Uh, I just I just get the home games. Okay. All right. I was I was trying to travel, but it turned into a money thing, and right, right. So, um, with that, so you obviously got to see a lot of these players uh, kind of come through. Are you noticing a big uh, kind of bump in the players that are getting drafted out of the USHL, or at least how high they're going now, too? Oh yeah, I mean, just looking at numbers, you can see it. Where ten years ago, USHL guys were sort of a rarity, but now, just looking over, one, two, three, four, five, about probably seven or eight this round. In the first the round, USHL at some point, right? Maybe not actually drafted out of the USHL but played some and the number the number gets larger every year for like for the first three rounds players getting picked and some kids like uh, Jack Drury I got to see a bit of he's taken 42 by Carolina I got to see a bit of him he's impressive and he does he play for young or he played for Youngstown no he uh, played for Waterloo Okay, so you just saw him kind of come through a couple times? Yeah. I watched him pass through uh, trying to find another one. I'm just scrolling through the list right now. Yeah. 
Well, while, while you're doing that, um, I was going to ask, do you find, um, just because I've looked at, I know a lot of people look at our CHL here in, in Canada, the sort of being the main junior junior league, obviously. Um, but in the States, they actually have the kind of two routes where a lot of players, it seems like, especially the strong strongest of the talent, they start in the USHL when they're 16, 17, you know, kind of draft into it. And then by the time they're 18, they're usually picked up by some college and go do NCAA for, for two years. So, um are you finding that more people are kind of doing that route, like where that's, or is it like just only the the most talented players or, or do you actually find a lot of 20, 21 year olds kind of aging out out of the USHL that actually will end up in the NHL afterwards or pretty much the guys that end up in the NHL, do do they all kind of go through that USHL to start, but then end up in the, the NCAA? Uh, I mean, it's getting to the point where the talent is so good that, you might find a player that doesn't get drafted ages out of the USHL goes to college for four years, like a, like Tucker Pullman where oh boy. yeah, he, he aged out. He, then he went to school super late, but he's still on an NHL roster and contributing, contributing well in his brief time. You're going to see a lot of that coming up and that's, that's good. I enjoy that because everybody likes an underdog story. Yeah. And as for players that go to um, college, it's usually the higher tier guys, the guys that are going to get taken in the top 10. Like how, uh, like Quinn Hughes was drafted out of Michigan. He started early. Uh, Zach Wierenski, who also went to Michigan, did the same thing where they're getting drafted out of college. Brady Kachuk did it. They went to college a year early so they could just get that experience under their belt. It's not going to be the low ceiling guys that do it. It'll be the guys that are higher potential, more likely to make an NHL impact early. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking of this as we're, we're chatting about it, but uh, there may be something to be said for the, the not resurgence, but just the, the success that the uh, national team has had in the United States because a lot of these players, they're getting – development kind of before they even get to their pro careers they're kind of getting it throughout i mean you start when you're 16 17 you're going to the ushl then you go to college you go there for four years i mean that's a huge luxury for nhl teams they're kind of bouncing around here too but i'm just seeing that they there's more competitive leagues beyond 20 years old right without having to have made the show right or to be in the ahl or the nhl I mean, I guess there's, like you said, the ECHL, but uh, it almost feels like a, a pretty good idea to be drafting, I guess, mostly Americans that go into this USHL, you know, because you know that they're, you know, have a good chance of going to play college somewhere. And then, you know, by the time you get this player into your system, you're not getting an 18-year-old that you need to watch for the next three years. You're maybe getting a 21, 22-year-old that you're almost ready to plunk right into your lineup. I mean, I'm not sure how old he was at the time, but Jimmy VC comes to mind. I'm guessing he was probably something like that. Um, right. Um, Drake, I, I think he was 20, 21 or something. I mean, uh, some, yeah. and this, this, it's not a rule, right? I'm just kind of saying I, I'm seeing if I were a, a GM that there, there might be some value in, in taking those players from the USHL because they do have another level they can go uh, to before you need to find room for them in your system or count a contract against them or whatever it is, right? They can go play at, uh, you know, uh, Minnesota State or whatever it is. Yeah, and uh, Jimmy Vesey was drafted as an overager. He was okay. in his second year of eligibility. So he's he's came into the league at 24 like Pullman did. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's a, that, I guess I used him as an example just because I figured he was above age. I, I'm not looking at this in front of me right now, but just the idea that you're getting these mature players, right, coming out of college that are ready to go. Whereas if you're talking about maybe some of your top end talent, or not your top end talent, sorry, like you're just below top end talent uh, coming out of the CHL, you still kind of probably are going to be parking them with your farm team for a while, right? You can't actually use them right away. Whereas, you know, you could just draft all these guys and let them sit in college and then you start looking at 20 to 22-year-olds to, to pick up and you're, you're automatically inserting them into your, your lineup potentially, right? So. Yeah, yeah and, you, and you know what you're getting a lot more than a player from the CHL and that, that plays into it. Because if yeah. you're drafting 
like with the later round picks, if you're drafting a player out of say Michigan or North Dakota, you're going to wind up, you're going to see what they are a lot easier than somebody who's still playing against kids. This like the player may be 22 and have a lower ceiling, but he also has a higher floor. You know what he is and there's a lot less risk. And with GMs who are getting more and more afraid to pull the trigger on something stupid, which as a fan, that's something you want anyways. You tend to want a safer pick. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of an all-around thing. Yeah. You know, it's actually I'll, – I'll hit, hit you with another question here right away, but uh, talking to our friend Jake before I asked him a couple times, if you took the Memorial Cup winners of the CHL – and put them against the national champions of the NCAA. I ask him this every year. I said, who would win? And pretty much every year he says the CHL teams are probably more skilled overall, like have that higher end talent, but the NCAA teams would win because you're probably talking an average age, you know, an average manhood of yep. uh, like, you know, a year and a half to two years older, bigger, faster, stronger, everything, right? Like just more prepared. So there's some, some huge value in that. And I'm jealous of you that you get to see sort of that progression going into a, uh, you know, from the USHL right away too. And yeah, it just seems like you guys got a really good system down there in the States. Okay. Anyhow, I'm going to hit you with the next question. So some of the prospects uh, that came out of this draft, who are some of the kids that you're really excited about? Uh, they can maybe focus a bit more on the, the jets uh, related ones, but um, uh, other ones I know that you follow around the league. You've already mentioned a couple too. So who are some of the players we need to look out for? I, I do love the Gustafsson pick from the jets. There's bias there, but the kid looks just watching film. The kid looks like he's going to be an NHL player and quicker than some may expect. I think he's going to wind up being another Veselinen type to where he's going to break into the league sooner rather than later. As in, he'll be in the AHL next season, not this upcoming year, but the year after, he'll be in the AHL. Right. He's going to. If there's room from all the players that are playing there from the lockout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> he, uh, I really like this pick. I love my Swedish players. So there's a little bit of bias there, but this kid really impresses me. Uh, just scrolling down the list, players I wish the Jets could have gotten their hands on. Player I watched a ton of is because of work is Curtis Hall drafted at 119 by the Bruins. Um, the kid reminds me of Adam Lowry to where with is Adam Lowry with better hands. Right. In the so, C- or the USHL, his defense at forward was very good. He was, wasn't afraid to get into the dirty areas, all that mumbo jumbo, but he had a really good scoring touch he didn't light up the lamp too much this year, but his two-way game was good enough to where it kind of didn't matter as much. Right. I mean, the points are something to sort of be nervous about going forward because if he's not producing now, is he going to produce at the top levels? But he definitely has that scoring touch to him. And I, I've spoken with him before he definitely wants to work and get better and I think he definitely will he's going to Yale this year and I think he's going to work on his game and be in the NHL maybe in three years four years but maybe five or six he's making a full-time impact but he'll see some time um yeah sorry I went way too long on him no, that's fine. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're at about 16 and a half minutes, so we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here for this. But, um, yeah, a couple more of the, the Jets prospects that you're excited about. I know we chatted a little bit. Um, I was, we were messaging while I was at the development camp there uh, about Preston. He definitely has the best hair, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, wasn't, he was not picked by the Jets. but Oh, he was just invited? Yeah, he, he's just a camp invite. Oh, I didn't realize that. I, I actually yeah. didn't pay attention to the, the picks lower down the list. Okay. Yeah, he's uh, overage. I want to say he's 21. He's going to Ohio State this year. Um, 
he was a fan favorite in Dubuque. I watched a, I watched a ton of him too, probably just as much as I watched, not just as much, but almost as much as I watched uh, the Phantoms. Right. Um, he's a fun player. Put up fifty five and fifty eight this year for uh, the Dubuque Fighting Saints, who wound up in the playoffs. Um, he kind of reminds me of J.C. Lapon to keep it with. Uh, Jets comparisons, right? Or a, a Tanev, very yeah. very fat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very very fast. I don't know if his scoring will translate to the pro levels, but he definitely has that touch to him, to where you don't really know where he's going to be and what he's going to do. And I'd really like to see the Jets offer him a contract after a bit more development. Because he, he he's instantly be a fan favorite, whether it's with the Moose or the Jets. Right. Just a fun player. Right. Huh. Hey, um, I don't know if you remember this, but we were chatting about uh, I I was a big Eric Foley fan, and with him leaving, I know people are gonna kind of make the the comparisons here about the fact that they're both black. But uh, C.J. Franklin, I had a I had a chance to chat with him. Uh, when Harrison was in Winnipeg and had a really good chat with him. But I was I was telling you, like, I think he's my new favorite. Like, I love just the speed that he played with and everything. But then I went and looked at their stats just to kind of see how comparable they were. And um, I think CJ is – or I said CJ Franklin. Uh, Cease, sorry. Yeah, Cease now. Yeah, sorry. Um, Cease, yeah. Um, I'll get my names mixed up here. But it, his, his stats were, were very nice. I was I was uh, very happy with uh, what he had, and I, it helped me get over the the Eric Foley thing because I was a big kind of proponent of saying, yeah, he'll eventually, you know, could be on the Jets on, on like a fourth line, fourth line role. So we we chatted about that. So I figured I'd just kind of give you that. I actually have pictures on my phone that I took of their their stats. I was going to send you a side by side. And uh, no, uh, Cease Cease is definitely going to be a player. Yeah, um, he's in that area of. Jets prospects that can definitely make make it on the fourth line, but don't really have to because of their depth. Like players like Kosmachuk, who's no longer with the team, and uh, players like Tanev, Lapon, uh, DeLeo, who's just got traded. Yeah. Possibly Appleton. We don't know what we have in him yet. He might be a higher ceiling guy, but players like that who are definitely good enough to be NHL players, but may not be able to make it with this team. I feel like Cease fits in that box right? to where he's definitely good enough and he'll certainly turn into something. Even if it's a 13th forward kind of guy, uh, the talent is definitely there. And I am growing more impressed with the kid the more I watch. I say kid, but I'm. I think he's older than me. Um, <laughs> yeah. No but. But yeah, um, he's a fun player to watch. I'm excited to watch him on the Moose this year. I'm excited yeah. to watch the Moose this year in general. Yeah, yeah I think they're going to have a pretty good team. I mean, Veselainen coming into the fold, Stanley coming into the fold. Still don't know what we have in him. Yeah. His 20 year old season was something to watch really yeah, stepped up his offensive game. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, uh, he's no, he's no Henrik Borgstrom. You know, my feelings about that, but uh. no, no, he's, he's not Borgstrom. He's definitely not Lucas Johansson, but I know we, we have opposite, we have opposing opinions on who we would have taken at the oh, 18th yeah. overall pick in 2016. But, uh, yeah. Any whatever. of those left-handed defensemen. Yeah. Really? Well, I, I was, I'm still taking Hendrik Borgstrom just because, uh, uh, you know, you know how it is. You, you see certain players and you start to really like what they, they can do. And I just remember seeing him as a freshman playing at University of Denver. I got to see him play a couple of times against UND and I was just really impressed with him. Anyhow, we're getting far away from the draft conversation and we're at about the 22 minute mark. So uh, we might have to come back and hit on this in another episode, just talking more about the draft and uh, these young guys. Cause I know that's a passion of yours. And for myself, I, try and you know stay with it and uh pay attention to it obviously i got cj's his name wrong <laughs> call him franklin but uh oh my gosh yeah i need to go back and, and read all the names anyhow 
I think we'll stop there, Brian, and we'll uh, we'll come back and we'll chat about this uh, maybe uh, in a week again or something like that. And you can kind of spill your guts, and I'll try and shut up and let you you do do your thing here a bit more too. All right, I'm looking forward to it. All right, sounds good. Talk to you later, Brian. See you. Yeah, bye. Well, hello there, Chris. How are you doing? Hi, buddy. I'm here with Chris Mackling of the Mackling family. And something I learned about you today, you said you used to write for, what was it, Pro Pro Hockey Talk? Is that correct? Uh, Winnipeg Hockey Talk. Winnipeg Hockey Talk. I didn't, I didn't know that. How long ago was that that you used to write for them? I think it was, um, it was in Andrew Ladd's last year. Um, okay. Like the year before. I only wrote maybe five or six articles uh, uh, for them, but I'm not much of a writer, so it's mostly just a blog, I guess, not an article. But. Right, right. Well, okay, anyhow, um, so I wanted to chat with you a little bit about... Oh, what? Sorry? Also formerly of uh, the uh, Superfans podcast. Yeah, that is correct. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. This is uh, the grandchild of that one, or maybe the, the, the son of that one and the great or the grandchild of the Jetstream podcast. Yes, I think that's the math. That's right. Yeah. Seems appropriate to mention them. Um, yes, you were on that one and you did a great job. Anyhow, Chris, I wanted to chat with you a little bit about the, the Jets playoff run. So the Jets, for the second time since they came back to Winnipeg, managed to make it into the dance and uh, they had some success there, didn't they? Yeah, I think this time there was some expectation. I don't know if there was any. Uh, what was the first year? Twenty fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of expectation because of of the way the team went in hot in twenty fourteen. But I don't know how realistic it was. I think this time there was actually some. Hey, I think we can do something here, and yeah. uh, and and it, I think it mostly went according to plan. I. I don't think anybody could be disappointed with what happened. I think in hindsight, what happened with Vegas kind of crapping out in the final, uh, it makes you wonder what would have happened had they done that in the semis against us. But I think overall they did what was expected. Yeah. And uh, saying that, actually, I was specifically going to ask you is if as Jets fans, I mean, not that there's a rule, but should we feel more disappointed that we didn't sort of achieve what we were very capable of? Or did we in some way overachieve the uh, the season? Like I know they ended up being second in the league and everything, but I mean, one year previous, they were not in the playoffs at all and uh, hadn't been there very many times before that. So was last season and, and our whole playoff run, was that, in your words, would you say that's an overachievement or sort of about what they should have been and, you know, the disappointment is, is warranted? I wonder how you can look at that because I would say in, you know, uh, me and, and some of my close friends, I would say it was pretty much par for the course or maybe even a little bit of an underachievement in certain sense. Um, I thought they were a better team than most people, people gave them credit for. Um, like prior, prior to last season, right? Yeah, at the beginning of the season, I thought, you know, if we deploy the lines right, we play the right players, I think they're – and we can go back and listen to the recordings. They're one of the two or three best teams in the conference. And it, and it ended up that way yeah. um, as far as the regular season goes. And in the playoffs, again, I think everybody kind of expected whoever won the Jets-Preds series in round two was going to make the finals. Um so, I mean, beating them, that has to be a success, I guess. Uh, we yeah, don't. Well, I, I guess theoretically, too, if you finish second in, or if you lose in the conference finals, then, you know, that puts you as being the second best team in the West. And that's pretty much what they finished in the season. So uh, I know that would mean Nashville going to the finals, but it sort of was right on par with basically the season, if you could think of it that way, like the top four teams in the league. You know, and and that's pretty much where they were. They were top two. I know. Uh, I realize that, but uh, just yeah. in the West, they were second in the West, and so they basically finished second in the West as well, right? Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think they had. I mean, if you go a little bit deeper, I think they had every opportunity to beat Vegas as far as their matchup and uh, you know our depth, their depth, style of plays, and all all that kind of stuff. I think we had every opportunity. Um, as it usually happens goaltending either wins you or costs you a lot of times. And uh, Flurry did what Flurry does. He played really well for three quarters of the playoffs and uh, it happened to be against us. I don't know if Vegas was 
the better team in our series. Um, but if you can't score, yeah. I spent the whole I've spent the whole series wondering: Is this Vegas just being Vegas, and they're really that much better than us, or is this us not not being as good as we can be? And I think right. now that I've had some time to digest, I think it was we we weren't as good as as we should have been. Slash, we got goalied a little bit. Right. Well, I was looking back at actually the the last four games of the series. Like obviously the Jets won. The first one, we're kind of working backwards here, starting with the Vegas series. Yeah. But uh, the Vegas series, though, uh, they lost in series five to one. Jets won the first game at home, and then they lost the next four straight. So I compared those four straight that they lost to the Duck series of 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And uh, this series, uh, we scored, well, again, I'm just looking at those four games, not the, the whole five, uh, comparing to the, the four of the other ones. So it's at least apples to apples <laughs> four <laughs> games to four games and uh but in those four games the jets scored uh six goals against vegas and vegas scored 12 um whereas in uh against the duck series years ago the jets in that time frame they managed to score nine goals and they gave up 16 it seemed like the maybe the whole play was a little bit more open we were getting a bit more chances but also giving up a little bit more too and giving up some more goals because right away, not right away. I shouldn't say that um, in sort of reflecting on the series uh, and just remembering what those last four games felt like. I was wondering if I could draw any parallels to the duck series. And I don't know if there's too many, except that we lost four in a row. That's probably the one, right. the one true thing. Right. But I mean, this team was a lot better than that team. Um, the Vegas team arguably was a lot better than that Ducks team too. I mean, Ducks went on to, I believe, lose in the next round. Um, did they? Uh, yeah, uh, to Calgary, I think. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I was going to, you know, I'd already said it, so I might as well just committed to to it and then admitted my uh, my lack of uh, memory in that that area. But yeah, so anyhow, I just want to kind of compare those two. But the, yeah, the, the Vegas series was uh, a bit disappointing. Um, now, kind of going back to the beginning. Now, we started off with the Minnesota series. Was that a series that was ever in any kind of doubt for you? Were you ever worried about that matchup where you thought, Jets, well, yeah, we, we got this? Well, my only worry was uh, Dubnik because he can, right, he can win anything by himself when he's when he's going as far as I think if I remember correctly when we went into the series healthy other than Perot I think or at some point Perot got hurt whatever we had our full roster essentially I didn't I didn't have any issues going in thinking oh we're gonna have trouble unless Dubnik pulls a a nine sixty nine seventy save percentage and I mean again those are easy predictions right uh to just say oh if the goalie plays good we're gonna lose uh but I think, and I'll go back a little bit to the Vegas thing with this. I think in, in hockey, and the, there are numbers that would tell you this, but I, I, I think over the last 20, 25 years of watching playoff hockey, your top two lines generally offset. So what wins, for example, Pittsburgh and Chicago championships in the last 10 years? Of course, Taves and Crosby and, and Kane and Malkin. That's, that's important. But what's really important is the Jake Gensels and the Dustin Bufflins and these guys in the third and fourth line contributing. Yeah. Uh, I think to me, that's where the difference comes. I think your top two lines basically offset and where you make your money is on your third and fourth lines. When you look at the depth in the Minnesota series, it's like, well, that's a no brainer. Our third and fourth lines are going to dominate Minnesota. They don't have the talent to compete with us. Um, and I, I think what ended up happening was over the course of the whole playoffs, the Jets didn't have a third and fourth line uh, being productive. And that's to me where it got costly, especially against Vegas. You couldn't, I mean, Shifley Wheeler, I mean, I don't even know what they had, but it was ridiculous. The amount of points they had um, in that one stretch there. Uh, But they were the only ones going, I could have sworn line a was going to come out and say he was hurt because of the kind of the way he was playing. Yeah. A lot of people Um, predicted that, but nothing after a, yeah, and I think some of it has to do with maybe he wasn't hurt. Um, you know, again, that's your second line. So second lines can offset whether it means they both score a bunch and or they both score a little. Uh, it just so happened that we couldn't get much going after the first series as far as the lines go, uh, second and third line. Um, but the first series, yeah, I didn't have any 
if I can remember my Twitter prediction is something along the lines of the Jets have nothing to worry about against Minnesota. Some, something like that. Right. Now, so moving on to the Nashville series, that was probably the most exciting one because the Minnesota one was maybe a bit of a no-brainer. We were going to win. The Vegas one was maybe we thought we were going to win. I think a lot of people thought the Jets would uh, do well there, but obviously the way that it played out was not a very exciting series being a Jets fan. But the going to the seven games against Nashville, I think I believe I was at the game where the Jets lost 4 nothing, And I would say that was probably their worst game of the whole uh, playoffs. But then they also had the game, I believe it was the game before, the game after, where they won 7-3, to three, which was just like, I think the roof almost came off the place there. So it seemed like that second round series was by far the most exciting series of the Jets' playoff run there. I think that's pretty oh, for sure. to say. Oh yeah, for sure. There was the well. There was game three. The Jets won seven four. Was oh, that what it was? Okay, sorry. That's right. And then yeah, I was at the same one as you. The four nothing game. Yeah, and that, that was that was that was terrible. Yeah. Um, but the game before game five was that game where Nashville dominated. Pardon me. They were still running the trap, and it didn't look like the Jets had any hope. And then they had those couple of bouncing goals. Uh, Bufflin shot one from the point that kind of tipped in. Uh, Shifley made a really good pass on the one play. And then all of a sudden it was like the floodgates open, but they didn't really dominate that game, but they still won six, two. And uh, that one, I think they scored five in the third or four in the third. And so it looked like, okay, here we go. And then, yeah, then they came back to Winnipeg and, and shit the bed for nothing there. Um, but definitely that was, I mean, the whole series was kind of like that. It, it did have its frustrating points though, because of that trap that Nashville was running. It was, uh, it was so crazy that, you know, that's a 20-year-old system now. And it <laughs> seemed like we had so much trouble finding the easy way to break it. Um, yet, every time you were complaining to your friends or whatever, oh, my God, what are they going to do? How are they going to break this trap? All of a sudden, things would break down and Nashville would give up a goal or two or three just in a bunch like that. It was really yeah. a weird series. And while you even talked about the uh... – uh, Mark Andre Fleury stealing series, right? I mean, you can kind of look at it the other way. Pecorino, if he plays out of his mind the way he has, not always in the playoffs, but um, or I guess in some of the playoffs, not in the finals, the previous year, then you, you you don't really stand a chance against a team like Nashville. I mean, it feels like had they had better goaltending, which, like you said, is obvious. I mean, like yeah, if your goalie is amazing and they stand their head and they save every puck then there's no way you're going to win because they've saved every puck, right? But um, he wasn't doing that, so we stood a bit of a chance. But it uh, it, was, it went to seven, though, right? And there were some some exciting games, and they, they did shut us down, like you said, for long, long stretches. So um, that was that was definitely the nail-biter of, of the series. The Vegas one, I, I kind of resigned early to think I don't I don't see this ending <laughs> ending well. But yeah, it just didn't have any sort of it was almost like you got uh, I guess we're jumping now. But I mean, it almost seemed like there was nothing left. And you hate to to think that or say there's nothing in the tank or whatever. But again, when you're basically running two or three or at the most four players, as far as your forward group goes against a Vegas team that's going full bore 22 guys, you're not going to win. And that's what it kind of seemed like. It seemed like uh there was nothing further than Shifley and Wheeler at that point. And, uh, and it makes it tough. I mean, the defense played well, Hellebuck, as it turns out, had a pretty good series. Um, he let in a couple of mistake goals. I don't think he let in too many bad goals, but he made a couple of mistakes there, uh, near right. the end puck handling and, and stuff like that, but nothing bad. Uh, so you still hope that you can overcome that, but they just weren't playing with, I mean, I mean, we could get specific and say, I mean, that's where you have a problem where a guy like Brian Little, uh, we all, I'm uh, speaking as a collective, and I think it's fair, we all are uh, Matthew Perot fans, uh, you know, kind of in this group. And uh, those sorts of guys just, just weren't there in that series. Uh, I remember that Lowry, Lowry's line had a decent series, but they didn't put anything in the net. Right. And it was like, that's great that you're puck control and this and that. But when you get to that point, when you're in the Western Conference Finals, you need everybody to do something. And nobody did anything. Yeah. It definitely felt like that with the, you know, not to pick on Liney because you mentioned him already, but it felt like 
Lina was pretty quiet. And the one that I was um, most disappointed with, I'd have to say, would be Ehlers because he usually skates with so much speed and so much just pace to everything he does. I felt like he was getting the puck kind of just standing next to the board a lot and not really moving his feet and uh, just not really playing his style of game that's given him so much success before. So, yeah, you're right. It, it, it felt like it just – it. You know, if some people aren't playing bad, you can maybe overcome that if other people are playing well. But it felt like we all managed to play, you know, not very good at the same time. I don't know. That, that's kind of what I took away from it without actually looking at film right now or numbers or trying to. That's just a feeling that I got was it felt like nobody really stepped up except for, like you said, uh, Shifley and Wheeler, and especially Shifley. I think he uh, finished second overall in the, the playoffs in goals, certainly in five on five goals. Um I think Ovechkin had more, and uh, Shifley and uh, Kunetsov, right, from Tampa Bay. I yeah, believe. I think so, yeah. I think they both had 11 or 12 five-on-five goals. So, um, anyhow, um, we won't take too much longer, but the, this was our first kind of foray into the whole street party thing. How do you think uh, that went? I know that you attended street party a couple times. I think you went you went to, what, two, yeah. two games? Went yeah, to I went party to two or three times as well. Yeah, I went to the I went to two games and I attended pr- before Street Party. I actually didn't go watch a game there because that's out of my uh, comfort zone. <laughs> I could never watch a game in that sort of crowd. Um, we had a great uh, uh, Street Party at my house for one of the games, uh, which was which was a lot of fun. We had a bunch of friends and family over for one game, um, but the Street Party itself was a great idea. Uh, cost the taxpayers a little bit of money, which I don't think people were uh, <laughs> expecting when they were so excited for them at the beginning. Cause I think a lot of people that were all on board were a little cheesed at the end when it, they found out it cost the city money, which right. I thought was pretty funny. Where did you think it was coming from? Um, but overall, I mean, until they started ticketing, it was awesome. Um, yeah. The ticket, the ticket thing was a, a flop and I think they'll be better prepared. I think, uh, like anything in life, the first time you do things, you don't really know what you're doing. Um, so you're going to, you're going to come across some hiccups and things are going to change that next time they're in the playoffs. I mean, it'll be next year. Uh, true North square will be open and right. that's going to change everything alone. Uh, well, you have to pay to get in there probably. And then everything else will be on the outside of the streets. Who knows? Yeah. Um, uh, I think it, I think it was really cool, and I think it was really good for the city. I think it's just disappointing the way it ended with uh, with the ticketing and people like buying, who's hoarding ten free tickets. Nobody's got ten. Nobody has ten friends. Right. <laughs> Let's be honest. Nobody does. Um, so it was frustrating at, at the end. Uh, it didn't bother me, of course, personally because I wasn't there. But it yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, early on, definitely. Yeah, we all heard a lot about the, the ticketing stuff too. I know I experienced a little bit of it. But uh, yeah, the the one thing that I, I don't know if this conspiracy theory, there's a part of me that thinks maybe the ticketing policy was literally just to limit the amount of people that came, not to um, sort of check in, but actually sort of discourage more people from coming because uh, when you're throwing on a free event um, and the only people making money are the, I guess, the vendors, uh, I suppose, right? Selling hot dogs and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you know, hosting it, the, if you're going to pay for that many police and everything like that, why not make it a little bit easier on yourself and on everyone by just having less people around too. So you kind of make it a little bit inconvenient and you uh, kind of kill two birds with one stone because it's not going to cost you anything different anyhow. Right. So that's, that's my little, oh, maybe that might be in there. No, there's no, there's something to it. It's unfortunate because I think the whole point of something like a street party or the, uh, the, the breakfast or whatever you want to call it in during training camp and the, and the carnival. And those are to include people that can't generally go. Right. Um, but let's be honest. I, I do all right for a living and two games was my absolute limit for the playoffs. Right. So yeah. there, and there are a lot of people that don't make anywhere close to the, and not that guy make good money, but there's a lot of people that don't make anywhere close to the amount of money that I make. So a right. free street party is their way to include that's themselves. Right. And yeah. that's right. And yeah, so sure. that's frustrating because somebody that can't afford to do it also probably can't afford to be on their phone at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning or at a computer. Right. Um, so you are kind of doing something to, to the people that, should be that really 
And so that's a little frustrating, definitely. Yeah, well, hopefully they learn from it, and it'll be even better next time. And uh, I feel like we'll probably have some uh, some more playoff runs in, in our future to to figure this all out and figure out how to fan better and how to organize better and all that stuff. So, yeah, anyhow, we're pretty close to the 20-minute mark, Chris, so I'm going to cut you off. Thanks for your time, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Have you on. We'll get together, too, and uh, talk some more Jets. That's perfect. Sounds great. All right, take care, buddy. Okay, man. So that's it for the very first episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it and hopefully you come back for more. Like I said, we're on a whole bunch of different uh, platforms. iTunes coming soon. Google Play, which is now Google Podcast. Radio Public. Pocket Cast. Overcast. Spotify. I can't forget that one. And Anchor. That's where you can leave us a message is on Anchor. You can also send us an email to jetcentric at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at, uh, at jetcentric. So leave us a message there. We'll probably come up with a hashtag too where you can ask us some questions or send in some comments. Hopefully you enjoyed it. We're open to learning some more from you. Open to change. Open to hearing comments and everything. So hopefully you'll stick with us and uh, participate. We actually have a lot of really neat different guests uh, lined up and a couple different hosts that are going to be interviewing them. So that should be different. You won't just have to hear my voice. So uh, that's a cool thing about the future. So come back because it's going to be good. All right. Take care.